Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would be with us now. Help us to remember, help us to believe that you have seen to it that we are present at this moment for this sermon, for this service. Give us grace to believe that you have arranged this and help us also to believe that you see us in all of our contradictions and all of our beauty and all of our fragmentation. Your response is always to move towards us, to heal, restore, and renew. Help us to believe that today as we gather together in Christ's name. Amen. I'd say this is in the top 10 moments of my marriage. It was 1995, January of 95. We had a decision to make. Would we move to San Francisco and start a church or not? We had been saying yes in our hearts all along, but I started to really doubt whether this is a good idea or not. I remember the night we had just tucked in our little ones. Torelli confronted me in the hallway of our home in Knoxville. And she said, I want you to know something. I believe in you. You can do this. We can do this. It will be okay. And that was the first time that I knew that we needed to come to San Francisco to start a church. It was powerful. I can recount it and feel it right now in my bones that very moment. And that's what happens when someone, even if it's just one person, says, I believe in you. I am for you. I am not against you. We can do this together. I'll bet you have moments like that 
in your life as well. Some of the biggest moments of your life, I would bet, are when people, someone, looked you in the eyes and believed in you. So we come to this passage today in Romans chapter 8. We come to one of my favorite sentences that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And so I have one big idea today and three reasons why I like the big idea. The one big idea is God pursues our liberation, not our condemnation. I like it, first of all, because it's realistic. Paul has spent a lot of time talking about the human condition in Romans chapter 7 right before this. The painful juxtaposition over our wanting to get things right and not having the power to do those things. Willie James Jennings, in his masterful commentary on the book of Acts, says, We who follow Jesus are working in wounds, working with wounds, and working through wounds. I love that. In all of our Jesus following, we bring those wounds with us, and we're working through them. And often, not always, those wounds are self-inflicted. But I love that when Paul wants to write one of his most important sentences, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he prefaces it with real talk about life and our deeply contradictory lives. Because our wounds are contradiction makers. The very thing I hate, I do, Paul says in Romans 7. You ever feel that way? So much for any description of Christian spirituality is always getting everything right. The Christian gospel is not about you or I getting all things right. It's about God pursuing our liberation no matter how many times we get it wrong. And we do get it wrong, if we're honest, a lot. Because sin is not just merely a bad behavior or bad decisions or bad acting. Sin is a condition of the world in which we live. Like the air we breathe, we cannot escape it being a part of our lives. And if we're honest about it, we're powerless over it. We don't want anyone telling us what to do about it. A vivid contemporary example of this possibility comes from the wisdom from our friends in the 12-step community, the 12-step tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first step is to admit we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. The second is to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And the third is to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Substitute the word sin for alcohol and you have the crux of this passage. We are powerless over sin, which will inevitably lead us to death, but in the Spirit, we have the possibility of life. Sin is still a daily possibility. God has not eliminated it from the world once for all, not yet. However, a life of righteousness is also a possibility now because of the Spirit's power. As long as our minds are on the flesh, sin will drive us. But if our minds are set on the Spirit, our will on our lives are in God, then life is not only a possibility, but a promise. This is the hope in which we live, that God, who raised Christ from the dead, will give life to us, body, mind, and spirit, through the power of the Spirit indwelling us. 
One of my favorite stories about Jesus is when a group of religious professionals seeking to entrap him brings him a woman caught in adultery. The law, strictly read, commands her to be stoned if this has happened. Will Jesus honor the law or not? Inquiring and wicked minds wanted to know, and Jesus will have none of it. You know the story, perhaps. He doodles in the sand, and it says, He straightened up and said to them, Let any among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. You see what happened there? You want to condemn? Fine. Only if you're without sin. That took care of all the religious professionals as they shuffle off. But then with the woman, he looks at her and says, No one has condemned you. Neither do I. Note well the power of that moment. Try to put yourself in that moment. Try to put yourself on the receiving end of Jesus looking into your eyes and saying, No one has condemned you. Neither do I. It's like it's just not in the nature of Jesus or in the nature of God to condemn, period. Jesus, always showing us what God is like, does not condemn. And yet Jesus does say, from now on, do not sin again. There's an acknowledgement of the condition that we find ourselves in. I mean, honestly, it's because of passages like this that I can stay a Christian for all these years. The realism of it, the grittiness of it, the grace and the grit, I need both. Words of life and words of warning, I need both. I think it's exactly what we need to hear. Because sin, the human condition mired in the propensity to selfishness instead of self-sacrifice, is everywhere lurking, everywhere seeking to dehumanize us. And so the first word we need to hear is verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is it. This is, that is what so many of us need to hear more than anything else today. The inner monologue doesn't play games. You know what the inner monologue is. It's that It's that speaking to ourselves. It's that conversation going on in our minds. It's that often words of condemnation. It knows what we want to deny, and it will condemn. What do you hear from the inner monologue? Often, it's shame, not guilt. I think Jesus wants you to know and deal with your guilt. No doubt about it. I think Brene Brown is right when she says, I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. But your inner monologue isn't usually speaking healthy guilt to you. It's speaking shame. Shame tells you that you didn't tell shame doesn't tell you that you did something bad and you need to live up to your highest ideals. 
go and sin no more, as Jesus would say. No, shame says that you did something, not that you did something wrong, but that you are wrong. The inner monologue usually goes there. To quote Brene Brown one more time, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or cure. I think the fear of disconnection can make us dangerous. Do you hear the difference between saying I did something wrong and I am wrong? I don't earn as much as others my age. I am worthless. I don't like learn like other people. I don't learn like other people. I am stupid. I don't look like others do. I am less than. I don't get as much done as others. Oh, I am lazy. I don't enjoy health the way others do. I am distorted. You hear all that? Guilt is, I told a lie. I feel bad about that. I commit to living more into my highest values. Shame is, I am a liar. I'll always be a liar. I'm less than. I wonder if the death blow to shame is exactly this, God's lavishing grace. Nadia Bowles-Weber from her book, Pastrix, said, God's grace is not defined as God being forgiving to us even though we sin. Grace is when God is a source of wholeness which makes up for my failings. My failings hurt me and others and even the planet, and God's grace to me is that my brokenness is not the final word. It's that God makes beautiful things out of even my own S-H word. Grace isn't about God creating humans and flawed beings and then acting all hurt when we inevitably fail and then stepping in like the hero to grant us grace, like saying, oh, it's okay, I'll be the good guy and forgive you. It's God saying, I love the world too much to let your sin define you and be the final word. I'm a God who makes all things new. The word from God today to you is this, there's no condemnation for you. You are not defined by your worst moments. You're not the sum total of your mistakes. You're a human being that I love and there is no condemnation for you in what I have done in Christ Jesus because I am committed to your liberation and not your condemnation, period. The second thing I love about God pursuing our liberation and not our condemnation is not only realistic, it's also life-giving. Has your life ever been changed by anyone condemning you? I'm not talking about truth-telling, real talk, truth-telling. That's what we need. I'm talking about condemnation. It never gives life. It always produces death. So God does condemn something, sin. It says there in the passage, he condemns sin in the flesh, the passage says. On the cross of Jesus, sin has received its death wound. Tom Wright, New Testament scholar, says, Before the Spirit can be unleashed to blow like a spring gale through the dead wood of the world, the power of evil needs to be broken. 
The way that needs to happen is for sin to be condemned, not just the passing of sentence, but its execution. Paul declares that this is precisely what has happened in the death of God's Son, the Messiah. Notice, it doesn't say that Jesus was condemned. It says that he condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. Let me be clear. God did not desire to punish someone, so he decided to take it out on Jesus and punish him on everybody else's behalf. This is about a sentence of death being passed on sin itself. Sin as a power or force capable of deceiving human beings, taking up residence with them and so causing death. Sin, a wild and destructive force in the world, needing to be brought to its demise. God breaks the power of it and then gives the life that sin would otherwise prevent. That is what happened on the cross. So the question today is this. Do you want your life to be governed by the power of sin and death or the power of the spirit of life? God's spirit. Sarah Lancaster, New Testament scholar, in her commentary of Romans, put it this way. Trapped in this way, the trap of knowing what is right and not doing it, the self is miserable. Furthermore, sin is so strong that it's not possible for the will to resolve itself out of the problem. The self needs to be rescued from it. Jesus Christ is, of course, the deliverer, and Paul thanks God for him. Seeing how powerful sin is when it dwells close to us, this text invites us to consider carefully what we invite to dwell in our lives. I like that idea. What are you inviting to dwell in your life right now? To govern your life? What is dwelling in you today that needs to go? Throughout this passage, Paul paints a picture of two mindsets, a mindset of the flesh and of the spirit. Now, the flesh is not the physical body, but rather Paul's way of talking about humanity when it drinks in the age, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world, rather than the spirit of God. The spirit of the age invites you into a life of quid pro quo. Think about your life right now. Are all your relationships really transactional? Like, I'll do this for you, but I'm going to expect you to do this for me. That's the spirit of the age. That's not the spirit of God. A life of revenge and violence, either verbally, emotionally, if not physically. A life of slander and profiteering. A life of accumulation and greed. A life of pleasure without integrity a life of immediate gratification instead of patient trust, a life of addiction to power instead of power sharing, a life of comfort and personal peace at all costs instead of a life concerned with justice and equity for all and a willingness to pay a cost for that. It's a lazy life, a half-life, no life masquerading as real life. Jesus invites you into much more. Jesus invites you into more if you will have Jesus indwelling your life by his spirit. There is another way. Being filled with God's presence. Stephen Gunlock is going to be preaching next week, and he'll talk a little bit more about this when he teaches from verses 12 to 25. 
that there is a way to lead a life filled with life. Are you tired? Are you tired of what a life of self-interest has brought you? Are you curious about what a life of self-sacrifice might bring you? I mean, really, the question is, do you want liberation? Do you want freedom? The third thing that God pursued, that about God pursuing our liberation and not our condemnation that I love is that it's hopeful. It's hopeful. I love how Paul always steers us to resurrection in all of his writings. It's his constant refrain. It's like he writes and writes and ties us up in a thousand knots with hints and allusions and half statements that make us refer to other statements. I mean, seriously, if you want to do something tedious, read an in-depth commentary on any book from the Apostle Paul. Be prepared for lots of details and having to piece together things from other things that he said. There's always an innuendo. There's always a tie-in to another chapter from another verse. It's hard to keep it all together. But at the end of the day, he lands the plane on resurrection. He ends up saying, after all of those things, all of this is really only true or meaningful because Jesus rose from the dead, and if he rose from the dead, you will too. That's how he sums up this whole passage in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. The final word for the new creation inaugurated in Jesus at the cross is resurrection, life, not sin and death. I found that my own inner monologue loves to future trip. I imagine you may have found that yours does too. It never future trips to resurrection. It always tends to future trip to death or emotionally, spiritually, socially, even physically in the age of coronavirus is out of control. It tends to future trip towards scenarios of the future that aren't actually true, but are always disastrous, and it tends to make my anxiety go off the ledge. Paul always brings us back to the resurrection because this is the foundation of an inner monologue of hope. Hope that believes in the end things will be made new. Hope is a blueprint for the future. Hope is what we need to keep ourselves alive and keep others alive. Hope is what we need to thrive. Resurrection reality insists on hope. It demands hope. I would say it is the very oxygen of hope. Do you have hope? Do you have a spirit of resurrection in your life? Do you want it? You can't jump through any hoops to get it. You have to see that it's already there and live into it. God is eager for you to know it, experience it, to live into it. You are God's offspring, the writer of the book of Acts tells us. We are hijacked into thinking our family is somewhere else, but you are God's beloved child. As the song we sang a few weeks ago from Outer Banks reminds us, God was never angry. God was not against me. God was never far away. God's not disappointed. God's not keeping score. 
God's not judging my mistakes. God is light. God is love. Do not fear, for God is with us. God is good. God is grace. God will never hide her face. Hmm. Now there's an inner monologue to build your life on. Let's do it together. Amen. Gracious God, we pray today that you would re-narrate our inner monologue. That you would inform us and inform that monologue of the gospel of your grace, of your unrelenting pursuit of our liberation and freedom to live in the light of your love day by day, moment by moment. And so give us grace to do that today. Help us to see how your son Jesus is always inviting us into a much larger life. Give us courage. Give us faith to enter into it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.